Welcome to the OK Computer podcast takeover of the On The Tape feed. OK Computer is the latest offering for risk reversal media. We're going to cover all things tech, public and private markets, the intersection of Web 2 and Web 3. We have this amazing group of co-hosts and contributors. This is going to be in the On The Tape feed for a short period of time. So please follow OK Computer in your podcast stores so you get new episodes every Wednesday on your phone. Thanks. Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about Current? You're going to like this guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank anymore? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy-to-use app. Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y, and download the app. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Welcome to OK Computer. I am Dan Nathan. I'm here with my co-host, Rick Heitzman. What's up, Rick? Hey, man. How's it going today? It's a sea of red out there in the stock market. We're going to talk public tech and private tech. We have two very special guests to do it this week. First and foremost, we have Alexis Ohanian. He is the founder of 776 and Reddit. You guys know him from the Twitter and from basically anywhere. Right now, we got to get to our main man, Guy Adami. He is my co-founder of Risk Social Media. He is my co-host on On The Tape podcast, and he's just an all-around legend here. What's up, Guy? I don't know about legend, but man, I'm fired up to be with you. Rick Heitzman is a stud, in a word, stud, <laughs> S-T-U-D. What's going on, gents? I always appreciate that. I always appreciate that. That never gets old for me, Guy. And I love, I love the Freeman will be Yankee name for you up there. What do you guys say to each other? Saxa, Hoya or something? What is that thing? Hoya, Saxa. What a rock. All right. I got to learn. What a rock. I got to learn that one. I got to trust the process a little bit here, Rick, if you know what I mean. A little wink, wink. Yeah. I'll I'll throw them all in there. All right, let's get in here, guys. Quite seriously, we're going to touch the private markets with Alexis later, and we're going to talk crypto. We're going to talk about Web3 and a lot of the stuff that really interests him. But right now, we got to talk about what's going on in the stock market here, because I'm just going to start off with this stat here, Rick. And I don't know if you saw this. This was in the Wall Street Journal over the weekend. 40% of the stocks in the NASDAQ are down 50% from their 52-week highs. It's kind of a bloodbath here. We're taping this on Tuesday afternoon into the close here, and we got to NASDAQ that's just kind of nasty here. It's down, what, two and a half percent or so, but there's a lot of stocks that are down a lot that are absolutely getting creamed. When you see this sort of price action, Rick, in the public markets, what does it make you think about some of the term sheets you guys are writing up in the private markets right now or some of the public equities that you've been distributed? We see it and we feel it. We feel in our private portfolios is we've distributed a lot of stock of companies that have gone public in the last two years, and that's worth less than it was before. A lot of our companies at least start as smaller cap names. And even though The beating has been happening by the NASDAQ. You haven't felt it as much in the large cap names of the Apples and the Amazons, and you've really felt it in the sub $20 billion names. As companies go public, they start off small. Hopefully, they get big. On that way, a lot of them have gotten beaten up, and that's really scary because you can see it in your pocketbook. And I think as we, and we had a big team meeting today, we're still in the process of kicking off our year, setting our goals, thinking about what's new and what's changing and what's changing this year and what's changing in 10 years. But you know, there's a reset of the world. We always see the public markets react the quickest. They have the most information. 
They also have the quickest feedback loop and incentive systems can create all behavior. So the feedback loop of the public markets and losing money matters as opposed to a lot of uh, maybe VCs thinking about how they had a great Q4 and just seeing that roll through their P&L, which is different. But I think you're starting to see a correction, but I think there's going to be a huge flight to quality. So as we sit there and talk about our first mark pipeline, the term shapes we have out, we want to make sure that the best these are the best ideas, the best founders in a reasonable deal, because the world will continue to move forward and great people will create great things. And let's just make sure that we're being thoughtful about that. All right, Guy Dami, put your fast money hat on here for a second, because you've had a call for over a year about interest rates going up meaningfully over the next year or two thing. What's well, happening right now? And so here you are on OK Computer. Let's have a little on the tape conversation here. Why has this been the thing that's caused tech stocks? When I say the thing, the 10-year US Treasury yield getting close to 2% for the first time in a very long time, at least a couple of years, and the two-year Treasury yield above 1%. Why is this the thing rocking tech stocks? Yeah, it's interesting. And it's great to be with you, gentlemen. First of all, you know, I think Yes, I've been pointing out for quite some time that I thought rates would go higher. I thought 2021 would end with the 10-year yield either side of 2%. That didn't come to fruition. As a matter of fact, Dan, and you were spot on this one earlier in the year in 2021, we actually saw 10-year yields trade all the way back to about 1.13%, which really took me off guard. Didn't see that happening. But here we are as we're taping this 10-year yields, 1.85. The more interesting one of the two, though, is the two-year yield, which has gone from a boring 20 basis points seemingly throughout 2021 to, as we're taping here, either side of 1%. And why is it affecting tech stocks? Listen, I don't think the business model of NVIDIA or their business opportunities changed fundamentally, but the stock has gone down $80 in about a month and a half, about a 24% move. Why is that? Because In a zero interest rate environment, nobody cares about valuations. And as rates go higher, meaningfully, as we've seen, people starting to focus on it and they're shooting first and asking questions later. I think they're throwing everybody out. Anyone with a big multiple is getting punished and the baby oftentimes is going out with the bathwater. Just to put a button on that, though, Guy just mentioned NVIDIA, which is a semiconductor stock. They're exposed to a lot of really exciting areas. I think the latest thing is Metaverse. It used to be crypto, data center. But here's a stock that is trading right now at 20 times sales. A semiconductor. I don't know if there's ever been a semiconductor stock that's had a market cap of over, let's say, $10 billion that's trading at 20 times sales. But you do the math because estimates have not come down yet, but it's down, as Guy said, 24% in the last couple of months from an all-time high. It's investors' perception of what they're willing to pay. And so is that sort of mentality seeping right now into the private market, Rick? It clearly is. You're seeing, especially the high revenue multiple stocks and not high earnings multiple stocks, it's seeping back because as kind of guy alluded to, if you're thinking about a business being a sum of all its cash flows, and it's not really sexy for VCs to talk about DCFs, but if you think about the earnings and the terminal value of these technology companies and startups is much further out. So you're trying to figure out what is your interest rate or cost of capital going to be when you ultimately exit down the line. And as that creeps up, as, as your risk-free rate creeps up, as your cost of capital creeps up, your projections don't change. Therefore, the value of the company goes down. And I think, sadly, we're going to see a lot of companies whose numbers don't change or even go up, but the valuation goes down as you just see 
a lot of the uh, air come out of the multiples. Well, maybe sadly or not, because again, Guy and I have been sitting here putting our stock market hats on and we've never seen anything like it. The last time we saw those sorts of valuations, and I know things are very different, was 25 years ago. And here's the one thing that we worries us a little bit is that most investors have never sat through a protracted bear market in the stock market. And I know a guy would tell you that most investors right now have never seen a rate hiking cycle either. Those two things combined can be a little nuts. But here's one thing I want to ask you, Guy Dami. So the NASDAQ is down basically 10% from its recent all-time highs here. We wake up to news that Microsoft, the second largest public equity on the planet, is making a $70 billion cash deal for Activision. So what is this all about? Is this like a mad rush before interest rates go too high? I know that they're using their own stock, but they borrow a lot and they buy back a lot of their own stock. Yeah, it's interesting. On Fast Money for years, literally, we've talked about why hasn't anybody made a play for Activision, Electronic Arts, any of those names. And and quite frankly, it was just a matter of time, I think, before somebody got into it. To me, it makes a lot of sense for Microsoft. And I'll say this, I don't mean to be glib, but if you think about the price paid, it's a bit of a rounding error for them. I'm surprised they chose this route. There's some hair on this company, obviously, as we've talked about on Fast Money, but that's fine. And I think it just sort of buffers their already foray into the gaming market. What does it mean in terms of people getting there quicker or worrying that things are going to happen in terms of rates? I'm not sure that's the catalyst for this. Maybe it is. But what I will tell you is to your earlier point and to Rick's point, when things are going great and nobody seemingly cares about valuations, markets look very orderly. Markets look extraordinarily orderly to me now on the downside. I don't think we've seen anything close to the capitulation yet. And just to add one more topic or one more bow on this conversation, Apple is not even close to participating in this sell-off yet. If the market were to lose Apple for any reason whatsoever, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens to both the NASDAQ and the S&P. All right. So Rick, you have a long history as a tech investor. Obviously, public markets are always in the corner of your eye a little bit. What is your take when you see mega cap M&A like this in tech? Is it one of those things where you start to kind of roll your eyes a little bit? Is this Microsoft chasing? I think this makes a lot of sense. It's it's taken a couple of years, but I've always said that the big game companies, Guy mentioned Electronic Arts, there's Activision, there's Take-Two, there's really not that many. And they sit at this kind of in-between crossroads of technology and media and entertainment. Either technology platforms like Microsoft are going to want to enter the space and be more of a publisher and a consumer play. And Microsoft's already put breadcrumbs out there with acquiring Minecraft and the Xbox platform. But I also think there's always been the rumor of Disney and Electronic Arts as being able to have a more fulsome entertainment platform or any of the big media companies. So I think that this has been an obvious strategic M&A alternative for years and it might just be the catalyst now. And for and, and, and guys, right? It's just a rounding error for Microsoft. Whether they're getting you know thirty basis points or fifty basis points on their cash, they're producing so much cash that it just makes sense to put that to work. So I think these things would happen in any environment because it makes strategic sense and it's not that expensive. And it also shows that even in the down market like we see today, that. Deals that make strategic sense and deals that make financial sense will continue to get done. And it doesn't mean the world stops. 
There's a whole host of them that could get done. You just mentioned Disney EA. That's been rumored for a long time. Last week, we saw Zynga. Zynga finally got taken out. Listen, if this is a trend, and if you're telling me that that $70 billion number in stocks are rounding error, does a company like Roblox that's down 25% from its recent highs with a $44 billion market cap trading right now about, I don't know, 14, 15 times sales? Is that one that happens? Or Guy, from your history, when it comes to tech M&A, when you see a couple deals like this betting for... A couple more to come pretty quickly. Is that is that a dead bang loser? It typically is. But you mentioned Roblox, which I think is really interesting. I'm hard pressed to believe, and Rick, I'm sure has some thoughts on this, but I'm hard pressed to believe that if we're having this conversation this time next year, that is still a standalone company. To me, Roblox is way too valuable for one of these players out there. And there are probably three or four names that would make a lot of sense for Roblox to get gobbled up. Now, if they're able to sort of, I don't want to say weather the storm, but to stay independent, I think the platform for them and the trajectory for them, and quite frankly, the runway for them looks amazing when you consider how big Metaverse could possibly be. I think people are early on the metaverse. I think you're going to probably see an Epic's game IPO in the next 12 months. They're one of the hottest, most tracked private companies out there, let alone in, in the tech space. It's really them and, and it's Stripe is, is ones that folks are talking about in addition to Discord. And so that'll be an M&A target. And they're the uh, publisher and producer of Fortnite, which everybody knows. And I think Roblox EA Take-Two, and Take-Two is a company that bought Zynga last week, not dissimilar to Activision buying King to consolidate basically the mobile gaming aspect of it. So these companies have set themselves up not only to be great long-term standalone players, but also incredibly important parts of big media companies or tech platforms. I think from the metaverse perspective, those guys will will execute independently as well as be amazing M&A targets. And obviously, any of the big platforms of a Disney, a Comcast, EA of the world are obviously buyers. And then there's always the sneaky buyer out there of Amazon committed to the category with MGM and commit and owns Twitch, which is a key gaming platform of what they want to do. All right. So we're just talking metaverse here, but it looks like large centralized platforms of Web2 are not having a good go of late. Rick, your thoughts on Snap? It's down 50% from recent 52-week all-time highs. Twitter down 54% from its high made in February. It's down from, I don't know, the mid-60s to the high 30s right now in just a matter of months here. Is this baby with the bathwater? Is the sentiment with Web2 publicly traded names just too bad right now? Is it un? Investable. I'm not sure if this is a bottom, but I think if you look at Snap, that was way ahead of everybody. Snap was worth more than Twitter and Pinterest combined. And without the level of engagement, without the intent that those platforms have. So they might have gotten over their skis. Twitter can't grow. I mean, they have people who love the platform. I love the platform. You love the platform. Guy loves the platform, but they can't grow and they have a hard time monetizing. I think that these companies are now hitting a point in their maturation curve where they have to be able to not only continue to produce growth, but profitability. Now there's something new and hot behind them. So they have to start acting like grown-up companies or they're going to be punished. Yeah. So Guy, back to some of these high valuation SaaS names. We haven't hit these just yet here. I'm talking about a lot of consumer-oriented names. And it just seemed that with the acceleration of the pandemic and the interest in these names and the recurring revenue that they have and the sort of customers they have and the potential for growth, there was no multiple that was too high for these things. Do you think from a multiple standpoint, some of these stocks, and I could throw them out and you're seeing it right now, 
do they overshoot to the downside the way that they did to the upside, or do they start showing some relative strength soon? Because some of these names are down 40, 50, 60 percent. I mean, Zoom, which was obviously the winner of the pandemic in this space, is down, I think it's close to 70 percent from its all-time highs in late 2020. So you're wondering how much further do these names have to go? I mean, you say it all the time. People forget. I mean, not everybody forgets, but think about the move that Amazon had in its early years to the downside. I mean, we're talking about a stock that probably sold off 90 or so percent. So can these names overshoot to the downside? Absolutely. And we say it all the time. Stocks, commodities, securities, they take the stairs up and the elevator down. And you're now in the elevator portion of what's been going on. And I think there's going to be a huge overshoot that you're in the midst of right now in many of these names. And by the way, you you see a lot of strange things during these. Until recently, IBM, which had been left for dead for years, was having this stealth rally to the upside. And you're saying to yourself, why are people getting an IBM? I think for a large part, people are just looking for places to hide in terms of valuations that they can wrap their heads around. Well, that's right. And that might be the last time IBM is ever mentioned on OK Computer until they wrap up operations, guy. <laughs> really quickly here, you mentioned Stripe, Rick, earlier. And I think the recent valuation, it's like close to $100 billion. And when you look at what's going on in the public markets, as far as fintech is concerned, you say to yourself, there's no fucking way that thing is coming at $100 billion, not in this tape, not in this valuation environment, and certainly not with the rate environment that we're in. Thoughts there on fintech generally, because there's no shortage of names, whether it's buy now, pay later, or whether it's these newfangled banks or this and that, whatever, they're not trading well in the public markets. No, they're not trading well. Certainly, they have great business models. New Bank has been able to hold on a little bit more than others. And the rumor was Stripe was going to go out at 250 to 270 and break Alibaba's record for first day market cap has been trading over 100 in the private markets. And they basically said, hey, look to Visa and MasterCard, which are two of the top 10 most valuable companies in the world. And they're basically just going to undercut them and squeeze the value. And you're going to see the value leave Visa and MasterCard and go into Stripe. And that's what a lot of the growth investors were playing as the pair trade in the last couple of years. I, and now I think you're going to see you know, all valuation expectations are going to be lowered. Even guys with a great business model and a clear, enormous market like Stripe, and they might get out by, I think, the days of, of expectations of 250 to $300 billion might be over. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. We spent a lot of time over the last couple of years talking about PayPal and talking about Square, specifically PayPal, how its market cap literally, I think it was, guy, was it north of $300 billion? It was greater than Bank of America's market cap. And when you think about the multiple that investors were willing to pay for that sort of growth, I do think it's worth noting. And Guy, I need your take on this here, man. Look at the move that we have just seen over the last few days in JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs. As I'm talking right now, Goldman Sachs is down 7%. JP Morgan's down 4%. That's after it was down 6% on Friday. Those are the sorts of moves that I remember in bank stocks during the financial crisis. These companies were also considered, well, sooner or later, they're just going to have to bite the bullet and buy a SoFi or buy an firm or you know do something. What's your take there, Guy? When you see bank stocks under pressure like this, can these companies make a move like Microsoft did? Are they rounding errors out there that they can make some strategic M&A? Yeah, I'm not sure what that move is, quite frankly. I mean, these are legacy banks that have legacy issues. And as much as they'd want to be in the 21st century, I mean, for a lot of these guys and gals, I think that ship has sailed. So any acquisition that they make, in my opinion, they're going to have to overpay for, and they're probably going to be not be rewarded for. That being said, the question is, 
and why these banks traded so poorly. Again, valuations don't matter until they do, not meant to be glib. But you look at a JP Morgan, for example, which at its recent peak was trading close to two and a half times tangible book value, which is historically very rich in any environment, not least of which this. And I think the market is coming to grips with the fact that, hey, wait a second, maybe some of these banks shouldn't be valued where they are. And I think it's starting with JP Morgan. They're starting to take some of the excess off of that, but it's making its way right down the list. And by the way, you look at a city, which at its trough was trading about 70% of tangible book. And you say, where's the disconnect? And I think that's what, in my opinion, the market is trying to figure out in terms of the banks. Yeah. So Rick, I bring that up because you just mentioned MasterCard and Visa and the market caps there. And you look at companies like American Express. These are all companies that make acquisitions in tech. And that's why we're talking about them. When you have these big fat incumbents, sooner or later, they do have to bite the bullet. Do you guys at FirstMark, do you spend any time in fintech? We do. We have a couple of different fintech companies. We have Upgrade, which is part of a full consumer credit lending lending consolidation, debit cards, credit cards. We have Extra Financial, which is one of the fastest growing companies in the debit card sector, and kind of a full suite of a bunch of different financial institutions. And we think that that's one of the big markets in addition to healthcare, that trillions of dollars of value is going to be up for grabs in the next 10 years. Yeah, well, I got to give a shout out to our presenting sponsor, Current, because I actually use their products and they're great products. I manage all of my family's finances on one app with their debit cards. So shout out to Ellie and Alex. Don't spend too much, ladies. All right, listen, guys, it's been a heck of a day here in the markets. And, you know, guy, it reminds me last Monday, we got off to a really nasty start. I think the S&P was down 2%. The NASDAQ at its lows were down 3%. That day we had a reversal and we kept on rallying for a couple of days. Right now, into the close on Tuesday, we are going to see the NASDAQ close on its dead lows down 10% from its all-time highs made in late November. What's really interesting about the late November, it was right before Omicron. And NASDAQ has never confirmed a new high. And the S&P made plenty of them between Thanksgiving into year end or into the start of this year. What is your take on the NASDAQ? Do you expect further pain here? We're down 10% again. Where would you think it would be the sort of thing where you start poking at some of these names that have been absolutely destroyed, but then also the mega cap names, those big ones that we talked about, that five or six of them make up almost 50% of the NASDAQ 100. I'll say simply, the sun also sets. And I think that's what we're seeing here in spades, by the way. And, and in terms of finding a level, this is what I'll throw out to the listeners. I happen to think, in my opinion, that Apple is going to be the last one to get knocked to the downside. And I think it will be in the form of about $157 or thereabouts which if you go back and look, was a prior all-time high. If and when Apple gets there, that to me is going to be the level where you get into a lot of these names, which will be beaten down even more. So the big barometer, the yardstick is going to come in the form of Apple. Apple at 157, if and when it gets there, I think that's the level where you buy some of these other ancillary stocks. And by the way, Apple too. How long is that going to take, guys? How much more pain do we have to withstand? That's a great question. And Dan can speak to this. Rick, you know it as well. Everybody seems to think that Apple only goes straight up and you own Apple, you don't trade it. And I guess, quite frankly, that's proven to be the correct strategy. But we have seen four or five times over the last three or four years, Apple have anywhere from a 30 to a 45% peak to drop decline. And I think we might be on the cusp of that now. And typically they last, or it takes about, I'm sorry, maybe 10 to 12 trading days. And maybe we're in the first three of that now. 
Yeah, well, it's only down less than 8% from its all-time highs that was made earlier this month. So if that's going to give you some context, if you subscribe to that market mantra, they shoot the generals last. And I'll just say the other name I'd keep a really close eye on would be Tesla, which is trading just above 1,000. It recently traded as low as 900. That's also going to be one of the last battles fought in tech. Okay, listen, that was a great conversation on the public tech markets into a very ugly close here on Tuesday afternoon. Guy Dami, thanks for stopping by, buddy. This was really fun. My pleasure. You guys are killing it. All right, my man. And Rick, you and I are going to be joined by Alexis Ohanian. When we come back, he is the founder of Reddit. He is the founder of VC firm 776. So stick around. Hey, listeners, it's Dan here. I want to tell you about a company that I'm really excited about. It's called Current. It's a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. I'm a new Current customer. It's already helping me and my entire family manage our finances, all from one easy-to-use app. So try Current for yourself and get the app by going to current.com slash OK. That's current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. I'm back with my co-host Rick Heitzman and our guest Alexis Ohanian. Alexis is a tech founder, builder, and investor. He co-founded the popular social media app Reddit back in 05 and recently founded VC firm 776, which focuses on people, culture, and community. Welcome to OK Computer. I got to tell you, Rick Heitzman, we just started doing this podcast a few weeks ago, and Rick's like one of our first guests has to be Alexis. Thank you. Very excited to be here. Very excited to be your first guest and going to set a high bar. Good luck to anyone who's going to follow. The new gold standard, the Alexis standard. I'll take it. Best first guest and holding the torch till someone knocks you off your pedestal. But it's been great to have you on. Known each other for a while, serve on a board together, have co-invested together, have looked at a lot of stuff together. But you want to take a second and talk about how we met and why you're so excited to be here. Sure. Most people know me as co-founder of Reddit. Spent a lot of time there, obviously building it and then coming back and helping turn it around. But my love these days is investing, especially early stage investing. It's what I'm doing for the rest of my life out of a firm I started called 776. And I remember taking this pitch about a telehealth company called Row, just a deck back then and a vision, but it was pretty darn compelling and was lucky enough to be one of the earliest investors. And maybe around later, the founders invited me to be on the board. And I said, normally I would not <laughs> take on extra work. But you know what? This is a special company and I feel honored. And then lo and behold, Rick makes some very savvy investments in said company. And you and I find ourselves on this board and I've been delighted by it. This has been a really special company and it's a really fun board. And I feel like I learn a lot from you, Rick. I remember connecting with you at the tennis of all places because we happen to be in the same place at the same time. Wimbledon 19, Wimbledon 18, Wimbledon, Wimbledon. 17, Pim's Cups. That's right. So that's where we first connected IRL and just glad to be on this board with you and doing deals and looking at stuff. And I'm hyped because 
there's clearly been a change of guard now when it comes to the unbundling of media and Reddit is definitely part of it, but more broadly, bottom up social media, whatever you want to call it, people are going direct to their audiences, to their communities. And I think overall, this is a pretty good thing and a pretty interesting thing for sure. And so it makes a ton of sense to people who are in it, who are in the arena and thinking a lot about important issues are now firing up their webcams and starting pods and just glad to be the first guest, y'all. Now, look, this is setting a bit of a precedent. So I know we've got some things we want to talk about. We could take this anywhere you want to, because I think there's a lot of interesting things we could be talking about. Yeah, I'd like to take a step back. When you talk about Reddit, and we're in this moment right now where it's this big debate, and we're going to hit the big debate between Web 2 and Web 3 and who owns it and what all you VCs are out there to do and everything like that. But when you started Reddit in 2005, this was firmly at the intersection of kind of Web 1 and Web 2 for all intents and purposes. You use the word community. But when you use the term community now, it probably means something very different than what you were trying to create back in the mid-aughts. And just give us a little sense for that. And was that part of the ethos when you're building Reddit in 2005? I remember lampooning Web2. In fact, you can find an old YouTube video of me parodying it if you look hard enough. Because it was a buzzword that at the time really just talked about, hey, look, you can now read write on the internet pretty seamlessly. And it was some clever JavaScript. 2005. It was a big achievement. And I remember designing the comments on Reddit and every pixel of the arrows and the upvote and the downvote. And it was an achievement to be able to click that button, have the score change in real time, post a comment, hit publish, have it appear in real time, not having to reload the entire page. Like that was actually a big deal, quote unquote. And it was just some JavaScript. But at the end of the day, it marked the start of making it a lot easier for websites to have people posting user generated content just because it was faster and more efficient. That's all it was. But in 05, there were a lot of very skeptical people. I mean, a big part of my job as CEO is trying to convince people who thought there's no way in hell that the average person is going to spend a majority of their day creating and consuming content by random people on the internet or with random people on the internet. That was blasphemous in 2005. I was treated often like a crazy person for believing this. And now it's the norm. Why do you think you believed? So that was a non-obvious contrarian opinion then. What, what led you to say, I'm not crazy, you all are crazy, and this is the way the world's going? Mostly because I grew up on the internet and because I grew up with the web 1.0 version of this, like message boards. I learned how to code. My parents didn't know what the hell the computer was for. I got a book, HTML 4.0, never forget. I got the book from the bookstore and I was like, okay, websites, cool. And then everything else I wanted to learn that wasn't in that book, I had to learn from message boards where random strangers on the internet were giving advice or solving problems that I'd solved before. And I was getting good at copying and pasting this code. And like, that was it. And so in high school, I learned that no one was judging me on the internet for being some dorky kid. All they knew was I was some random person who was doing a skill that actually very few people had at the time. And so I'd have adults who were asking me for advice. I presume they were adults. And that felt so empowering as this high school kid. And so it was this wonderful drug to think, okay, on the internet, I can be totally detached from my sort of government identity, my real name, and I can just learn and do really interesting things that people think are special and valuable. And that was just building websites. And so I saw community firsthand and I grew up playing games like EverQuest and World of Warcraft. My first management experience was running a Quake 2 clan. 
like a team basically. And then an EverQuest guild. And this was in high school. I was a ninth grader and I was organizing like Tuesday practices for adults. That's leadership, man. Who would come home from work. And they had no idea that I was this kid because it would all be over text and in forums. And so I saw firsthand the power of community, the power of even pseudonymous relationships and all these things. And I got an opportunity because the whole Reddit idea was because Paul Graham had initially rejected us at YC for a different idea that I'd had. You're at UVA at the time. You're still in college. Yeah, I was a senior at UVA and I was going to build an app to let people order food from their cell phones using SMS because this is 05s before smartphones. It was ahead of its time, let's say. Uh, it would have been a terrible user experience. I'm glad he talked us out of it. And he was hell-bent on Delicious. And Delicious was this thing, really just for programmers. It was a place to bookmark content that you could go to later. And, and in aggregate, you would see what lots of people were bookmarking. And he was like, look, this is interesting, but something needs to happen that's much more real-time. And he coined front page of the internet. And I looked at him and I was the dude with 10 different tabs open, which were a new thing back then in Firefox to check every news website first thing in the morning because I'd want to see what was going on. And he was like, solve that problem, build it in a browser, build the front page of the internet. And I built a forum in college, a PHP BB forum that I ran throughout college with like a few thousand community members. And I thought, all right, let's bring them over. Let's see where we go. And that was it. I mean, we, in a lot of ways, stumbled into it. Look, we didn't have any big ambitions, which is why I'm a little sympathetic to the rest of my peers in the first wave of social media here, because I don't think any of us really thought it could be as big as it would become or certainly have the effect on society that it had, because we were just nerds who were happy to build something that seemed fun and would hopefully be a job for us. <laughs> that was the North Star. It was not ambitious. Most great companies start off as little projects trying to solve a small problem. But Alexis, did you think it was more of a communication mechanism or did you see the social implications, the interactive? We just talked about community a little bit. I have to assume that you never thought Reddit would be 100 million plus active users. Could not have predicted. Not Wall Street bets either. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to get to that. But are you surprised that how some of these platforms have stalled? Here we are. We're about to enter a new phase, let's say, of the internet, and we are all connected. We all have supercomputers in our pockets that are Wi-Fi and unlimited battery and all that sort of stuff. But for some reason, these platforms, and they can't really grow, and there's just a couple big companies out there that have the billion plus, and it really seems like hard to predict what's the next one that's going to be able to challenge that billion number. There were some really great challengers to Facebook, and then they got acquired by Facebook. (laughs) Look, I do think there is a weird, very interesting reckoning coming because we get lots of hate tweets for this. I'll get lots of excited, supportive tweets and then lots of hate tweets. That's how it's going these days. But I think to your point, these platforms have reached a kind of ubiquity. And I think it's really interesting because normally I would say that is a huge advantage. And certainly if antitrust folks are asleep at the wheel, it can be a great, great advantage for consolidating distribution. But what is different about Web3 is that you can't retcon community. And what I mean by that is Reddit was ahead of its time in the sense that in 05, we knew this would only be successful. And you can see it in the language that I used. I was the biggest user of Reddit for the first probably like five years because I was actively doing community management, leadership, really trying to be the party host, so to speak, within the community and bring out the best in folks. And I'd often tell people that being CEO of Reddit 
was actually a lot more like being a head of state than a traditional head of business. And that was actually a marriage of the two. And you had to be like 51% head of business, but 49% head of state. At the end of the day, right, if the business doesn't exist, well, there's nothing to be the head of. But today, and I think going forward, every CEO is going to have to have this mindset. And certainly every Web3, whatever you want to call it, company, project, whatever, has to have this mindset. So I think that way we're ahead of our time. Now, what is different though is, like I said, you can't retcon the community feeling of we're all in this together. And what's so exciting about this next wave is that for people who are early and right, you get rewarded, whether it's because you have a voice in the project, whether it's because you have something that is appreciating in value, there are ways to actually reward people for being early and right and as early as possible. And that is something that we've never been able to really properly value or measure. And karma points, I created those. So I ripped off the name from Slashdot. And I just wanted to have some kind of game mechanic. This is before gamification was a thing, which is why it was so poorly executed. But I just thought, okay, leaderboards would incentivize people. Free internet points. Just this idea of post a good link. If you get an upvote, you get one point. If you get a downvote, you lose a point. That leaderboard was a source of motivation for thousands, for our power users for years, because they just want to be at the top leaderboard. And then I created awards because I needed a better way to motivate people daily with new awards instead of just all time because those numbers got too big, too fast. And so even if you could magically retcon all of that and say, okay, that's worth some points here, the points, you still can't recreate the feeling of, hey, this thing is happening. We can do this together. We are a part of something together. We're building something together. And that community feeling is seductive. It's the reason these profile pick projects, and yes, the vast majority of these NFT projects are worthless. They're going to go to zero. But the few that will sustain have this really phenomenal social dynamic that's rooted in community that actually creates real value for the people who are true believers in early. And it just feels like all the lessons I learned from Reddit are now being reapplied to the entire internet using Web3, and there's real ownership this time. And that's exciting, because if it worked with fake internet points, it is really going to work when you can pay your rent with it one day. Super interesting as you think about that transition from Web2 to Web3. Besides how you compensate people in terms of status or money, what are the other key things you're thinking about putting yourself back in your dorm room 12 years ago, what would you have done differently then? Or what are the key dynamics that have changed over that time in terms of organizing and sending community? The resources now, all this blockchain tech is still pretty mediocre as a technology, right? It's still pretty slow, still pretty expensive. And yet, in spite of that, we keep seeing movements forward. It's going to continue to improve. It's going to get better. So I can't even give advice to that. The 16 years ago self That feels like eons ago. The best practices I would give to a founder CEO today really start with the stuff that doesn't scale. It's actually spending time in the community that you're building. I really believe that the minimum viable community, I've been tweeting this a lot lately, is going to be the, as no code, as all the other tools make it easier and easier to get like a V1 up and running, it's actually going to matter a lot more. Can you capture a community's attention early? What is the nature of that community? Are they motivated to be building and supporting or are they just there for some lame cash grab and to spam? Those things actually matter in the same way that the lessons learned from launching a restaurant are going to matter a lot more than they ever did to launching a startup because curating the first community of folks who are there when someone walks by and looks in and is like, oh, am I going to have a meal here? Actually matters. People would ask me for years, hey, I want to start a subreddit. What's your advice to building a community? And I'm like, look, all the lessons you learn from offline community building apply more than ever online because even subtle conversations now scale because even a little exchange in a thread can be seen by millions of people, right? If it goes viral or even hundreds or thousands.
What's your wanted piece of advice if I said, hey, Dan's starting a subreddit to create a new meme stock of risk reversal media? <laughs> what would you say? Hey, here's the one thing you got to do. I would say understand who you're building it for and then spend the time in there and actually spend the time talking to folks. These are things you can't outsource. They're things someone on the founding team has to own and be accountable for. You can be pseudonymous, but Fluffy Bunny 16, people got to know, shows up. Doesn't have to be Alexis Ohani. Now you know my alter ego. <laughs> Not my alter ego. Do you practice that on Twitter? Do you sit there in Twitter groups that are focused on fluffy bunnies or financial education? Like, okay, I can live in this community and now I'm going to take that voice I figured out. You do the work. You do the work in the same way that if you moved to a new town or you were trying to find a new bar to hang out at, a new sports bar, you'd go and you check the vibes and you talk to people and see like, is this for me? And if you walk in there and there's a bunch of people doing keg stands, you immediately get a vibe for the space offline. Whereas if I invited you over to my place and we were having wine and cheese and everyone was talking politely, you would get a vibe of the place. Same thing happens online. Don't take that for granted. It's the exact same concept. It's going to reward the CEOs who are much higher on EQ than ever before. And this is an amazing time to be high on EQ because you're going to win in ways that I think other people just literally will not be able to compute and understand. <laughs> and those visionary CEOs who have also the ability to connect on EQ are going to go direct to consumer, right? They're going to go direct to investor, direct to consumer, direct to channels. And as the power distance decreases, the people that are better one-on-one -on -one are going to be better off. I believe it. And look, we're now in competition. I see we as VCs, we're in competition with everyone. I'm already thinking ahead to a future where rounds are going to get filled up by everyone. Could be some anonymous whale who's investing. It could be the community of earliest adopters who are each putting in a little bit. Look, there's accredited investor laws that obviously need to change. In the meantime, a lot of this token stuff is still getting figured out, but I think it's inevitable. Next few years, five years, 10 years for sure, probably in the next five. And I think that becomes a really compelling thing when anyone potentially can feel a sense of ownership in a thing that they're a part of. And we've only started to see what that can do. And then you combine that with some really formidable CEOs. Whew. People look at the Elon thing with Tesla and the reality is, yes, he is an outlier in lots of ways, but the nature of that relationship is very much a sort of precursor or a preview of what I think ends up being the standard in a lot of ways. It's not always going to be as quirky as Elon, but that energy is real. The connection between founders and particularly CEOs and their community is going to be a much stronger one for companies going forward. You talk about CEOs here, and obviously we're going to get to DAOs because I think that's another area that's disrupting traditional corporations. But take a step back for a second, because really, if it weren't for PFP NFTs, Alexis, over the last, let's say, year or so, and I know they've been around longer, but they've really been financialized for all intents and purposes over the last year. And when you say a couple of things, and I think these are really important. You said a lot of these or most of these are going to be worthless. But the ones that aren't are changing people's lives, and they're doing so in a communal fashion here. And I spend a lot of time, I'm going to sound like a boomer here, man. Reddit and Discord are really hard for me to follow. But what I can do is when I'm watching an NFL football game, I can put my AirPod in and I can drop into a Twitter space with some anonymous artist and talk about it. And I love them and they're passionate and it's really fascinating. And everyone's trying to pick everybody up. And then there's people like you who are being just really optimistic about the whole thing. But I worry, I worry about this. And we've talked about this a little bit on our pod in the last few weeks. I worry that the people don't 
don't understand that these are financial instruments and they're moving, let's say, either USD or they're moving gains from Bitcoin or ETH into something that is far less liquid and it's going to be really hard to get the value out if everything doesn't keep going up. So I'm just curious your thought on that. It is very, very real. This is why I'm so fond of saying the vast majority, 99.999% of these NFT projects are going to be worthless. And I mean that, look, in the same way that 99.99% of things printed on paper are worthless. Paper is still an amazing medium. The vast majority of it is trash or hopefully gets recycled. NFTs are another medium. And today we're limited to just thinking about them as art, but the metaphor still holds up, right? This There's a coffee stain on it probably worthless, right? But you get some artists to draw on it and sign it and prove that it's theirs. And now all of a sudden this paper is worth something to some people still. It may not be worth lots to lots of people, but whatever. You turn this into some USD and it's still worth something. Uh, (laughs) But it's the medium is the part that excites me. And so what I hope people do is as they are investing here, speculating here, whatever you want to call it, they keep in mind the vast majority of this stuff is not for the long term. We are seeing a period of time when, okay, the printing press took a minute to spread all over Germany. And the first couple people were like, yeah, we'll build a Bible and we'll make a newspaper. And the initial creations of the printing press were still pretty limited because it required expenses and whatnot. We've now just unveiled this printing press across a global network, the internet, that for a little bit of time and effort, minimal time and effort, someone can go and mint an NFT project. And that's a gift and a curse. And the downside of it is, yes, there's a glut of worthless stuff. I would say glut of worthless stuff, that doesn't make the paper any less interesting or valuable as technology. Now, for the stuff that is valuable, stuff gets really interesting really quickly here because as this technology exists and as you have this idea of, okay, there's scarcity, there's only N of these they entitle you to certain access and privilege and it's a status symbol of flex and maybe you like the art, okay. Because this lives in a totally digital medium, you can do things very interestingly, very quickly with this. We've already started to see fractional ownership and we talked a little bit, whether it's securitizing it and creating fractional ownership, whether it's creating a DAO and having a DAO pool money to buy it. You're seeing wild things now be able to get engineered because paper on its own, even if this were a Picasso, right? Not a very easy medium to get a bunch of people together to share ownership of it. But because the blockchain lets us do this, we could start innovating. And the interesting question for me is like, okay, so if apes in particular continue to go up in value because people just don't want to sell them because they don't want to lose the benefits, they don't want to lose the flex, blah, 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 the reasons. And there is an increase in ways to either get liquidity, like you could one day borrow against your ape. In the same way that I could borrow against my stock portfolio from a bank, I could one day, and I think there's probably already a few platforms doing this, but like it's inevitable that you'll be able to borrow against your ape. It'll be some DeFi thing and that'll be viable, right? So now you can get some liquidity from that rather illiquid asset. Or maybe you can sell 49%, you can divide up 49% of it into shares that people want to buy to buy into. Now you're accessing a new kind of liquidity to it as well. As more and more of these mechanisms are built, the incentives to part ways with it go down because you're solving the problems you have and you're also now opening up. And I just think we're in the most boring version of this phase. We just figured out how to put an image on the internet and some 16 or 15 year old version of Alexis is sitting here like I was looking at my GeoCities being like, wow, I made a website that anyone in the internet can see how much I love Quake 2. And I couldn't conceive of seven years later, designing Reddit, 
But at the time I was like, oh, this is so cool. I can put things on the internet. And that's the stage we're at right now, except the growth rate of it is going to be a lot faster. There's more to come. That's where I wanted to go next. The speed in which this has all happened and the realization of it, to me, I know that we're in this hyper-accelerated period of a lot of things, but when it comes to financial assets, they usually mean revert. And that's the one thing that I guess that I'm a bit more skeptical. And the other thing, when it comes to the internet, is everything is ephemeral. And that's the one thing that makes me nervous. If you had to tell me over under floor price of Bored Apes, and I hate to bust up your Twitter avatar here, I'm taking the under a year out. From now? Yeah. I will take the over. And we should make a friendly wager for a nonprofit on this. Dan, you're going full boomer here. I am very optimistic about everything that you just said, but I just read this today, that Charlie D'Amelio made $17.5 million dollars last year by dancing on TikTok and selling her brand. I love Charlie. Big fan of Charlie. She's amazing. But I'm taking the under on Charlie in 2022 on that number. My point is there's another kid waiting to become a star on TikTok or the next platform. And when I look at generative art and I see one of 10,000, I say to myself, I don't really particularly see that as scarce in this ephemeral sort of world that we live in right now. And that's my only pushback a little bit. The magic word here is community. And for everyone listening at home, you know, take a shot every time I say this. The community is powerful. Dan, what's your favorite sports team? Syracuse University basketball. Wow, I am really angry at you because I'm a UVA guy. And <laughs> I know Syracuse always gives us hell. And Georgetown University always. Wow. <laughs> well, so congratulations. Both of you have just admitted to being in a cult. And that's great. This is a socially acceptable cult. It is perfectly okay and encouraged in our society that you indoctrinate your children into this cult. Why are they orange men? Because you said so. Doesn't matter. What do you worship? You worship at the altar of basketball in a really cold place during winter. And the reason I love sport for this is even if you're not a sports fan, you could tell I am. Ostensibly, you understand the power of this cult. If I wear a UVA jersey, and I would proudly in Syracuse, right, I would rightly get sneers or at least some condescension or some playful ribbing. This is tribalism at its finest, right? I'm wearing something into not quite enemy territory. You guys just pick on us. But the reality is we're a part of something that is communal and is sort of well built into both commercial society and just society society. So I go back to the PFPs or even the D'Amelios. There is a new kind of tribalism and community that has emerged, and it may seem silly, on the one hand, I'm not going to make fun of the orange man mascot. I could. I could easily make fun of that mascot because why would you want a fruit that doesn't even grow in the region? Does it grow in the region? <laughs> no. Makes no sense, but it's a great color and I'm not here to make fun of it. But I would look at that and I would say, okay, if I'm from Mars and I show up and I'm like, look, there's a bunch of people who worship these 10,000 apes. They just like the way they look and it gives them access to some cool stuff. And there are a bunch of interesting people attached to them. And I say, hey, there's a bunch of other people. In fact, there's millions of people who are really into this orange creature they're into because they play this game where they take a ball and put it into a basket. To the Martian, the Martian's like, whatever, that's both weird, but yeah, you humans are really into that, so cool. Or the apes or some of the NFTs, is that the college that you have such passionate memories about? Or is that the nightclub you were in in Miami last weekend? <laughs> I shouldn't have used co college as a rooted one. I'll make fun of the Yankees, Rick, because I know you're team Yankees. There is this nostalgia and there is this essence that's built into a brand of sport, right? Even a design, I could show you pinstripes and you're like, of course, that's Yankees. But why? It's largely constructed and invented and there's history and there's nostalgia and there's all this stuff. 
internet culture moves at such a rate and the intimacy is just in a different way. Like the D'Amelio fans feel like they know her. They've watched her grow up. And sport is an interesting one because I do think we're going to see a new era of athletes having a much closer relationship to their fans than the teams and then the leagues. It's really about that direct human to human relationship. And I would just say it's a different type of cult. And so the reason I would still be long or I would be, I'd take the over on the D'Amelios and the Apes is because I just wonder what would it take? It would take something so sensational to make a bunch of people decide to hate them or not want that to continue to be successful. I think it's totally true. Wait, Alexis, it's already happening. I've seen a bunch of Twitter spaces that they're saying the apes are racist or OpenSea is canceling my sale or this. It's already starting to happen in a quick way. And there's a guy that we all know who's in this space who just got canceled for being misinterpreted possibly or saying something that a lot of people didn't like. Is this Chamath? Yeah. And I'm just saying it doesn't take a whole heck of a lot these days to turn the tides of some pretty big movements. So yes, it is easier than ever to create the cancel storm. Justified or not, that is now a part of the culture. I think the pendulum is going to swing back candidly because I think everyone's going to kind of retreat to their own spheres. And basically you can't be canceled if you have a big enough community that just doesn't care. And I think that's how this will net out. But in the short term, I actually think in some ways for a lot of these things, the backlash almost justifies and further reaffirms the true believers. And you see this even broadly around Web3, and I don't like these memes around not going to make it and GMI that people will say, which is basically dismissing anyone who's critical of crypto or Web3 because they're like, oh, they're not going to make it as in they're going to enjoy being poor is the other phrase. Like, I hate that. That is not at all inclusive. That's not at all trying to bring more people in, which is what everyone should be doing if they're being selfless. But I do think we have this fascinating new medium that can do a lot of interesting stuff. We're just barely understanding what it can do. We're still at the, like, I'm writing on this piece of paper thing. We haven't even figured out origami or how to make a declaration of independence or how to do a Mona Lisa. Like we're at the most boring version of this paper. I do think that this is going to continue to wind up as it gets more and more accessible. Look, Coinbase, they're going to roll out NFT access to millions of people who already have Coinbase wallets, who are already sort of bought into it. OpenSea's audience is still remarkably small relative to the broader size of internet users. And I think what will make the difference is when we don't even have to use the phrase anymore. No one cares about HTTP. No one thinks about most of the protocols that underlie their internet usage. And so that's where I think a lot of this ultimately needs to go. The user experience just needs to be so good that people are just playing their favorite games or they're spending time on the internet or they're creating content and they just know that they have a stake in the things that they're doing and they don't need to know the underlying and they don't have to think about it as a technology because no one really cares. I agree with that. So what's one big prediction you have for 2022 in the evolution of Web3? Majority of things might go to zero. Some things are going to be big. Let us in on the little secret. What are the things that are going to be bigger than anyone could ever imagine? I need to convince Charlie to do an NFT just for you, Dan. I'm going to let you get one of the first ones. I'm going to make sure you get one of the first ones. I'm not a macro guy. I am, like a lot of folks, though, very nervous about the bigger economic picture. So I do think some correction needs to happen at some point. I want to be careful. I'm welcoming a correction in the sense that we saw this during the last 
crypto correction, that crypto winter of 16, 17, 18, that was when the builders really got to work building because it shook out the charlatans, it shook out the grifters. And some of the best crypto investments I've made were during that period because a bunch of great founders were just like, all right, let's go. That's when OpenSea was going. That's when Cointracker was going. Like That's when the true builders were like, all right, roll up our sleeves, let's build. And so in a way I do look forward to that and see that. And I think that could very well be on the horizon for 2022. Every person who's smarter than me and thinks about this stuff is like, I'm getting anxious. Something's got to give. And you know, Rick, you and I thrive in these moments when the best founders are coming out and saying, I'm going to start a business now because this is the time. Like I have to build. And that adversity actually creates some amazing companies. All the tourists go home and you're left with the real warriors out there on the playing field making things happen. That makes this year and next year an exciting time. All the charlatans go home in your words. That's super exciting. Yeah. I hate the charlatans. I hate the grifters. And it's so energizing. I guess that's the other part. I try to be optimistic about this stuff because I can't unsee the fact that there are so many huge problems that need to be solved. And I'm at a point in my life, 38 years now, I have zero time and zero bandwidth for anything other than problem solving. This doesn't work out as well in my personal life. I've learned that as a father and a husband, that's not always the right course to take. I was going to say, that's how I feel about that. As a professional, though, I want to occupy as much of my time as possible with people who are building and creating and solving problems because there is no shortage of stuff that's got to get fixed and improved. And I proudly have my Captain America shield back there. It's not a real one. Let's be clear. No vibranium hookups. But I am so motivated by the fact that I do think the next decade is going to potentially unlock amazing stuff, whether it's Web3 related or not. I want to be helping the people who are building it. You don't have time to deal with the haters. The best way to deal with haters generally is just to build and then let your work speak for itself. I agree. I think we have the right job for that. What's in store for 776 in 2022? I'm trying to build software here to make as much of this job as, let's say, automated as possible. Not because I want to do less work, but because I want to do less work that robots can do better. I want to make sure when we're taking time for human attention that it's for creative work, strategic work, things that humans are really great at. Whereas if it's like making some intros or things that I know we can productize a lot better, we got a bunch of stuff rolling out. I'm a product designer at heart and to be able to work on it called Cerebro. That's Professor X's machine his computer uses to telepathically connect with every superhero in the world. That's my baby and I'm excited to spin up some more releases there too. I need to make it better for my co-investor pals too. I've got some ideas make it easier to share notes. All right, Alexis, I hope you don't feel like I'm a hater on the Demelio clan. No, I want this, Dan. No, listen, I really am. I'm rooting for all these. And I think here's one area that we didn't really touch on yet is that no matter what happens, if the worst thing that happens is that a bunch of communities are created and people are on-ramped into this Web3 world, that first mark and that 776 that you guys see, and you're trying to help creators get to the next phase and bridge gaps between technologies and make things better, that's fantastic. And I guess I look at it through the lens of a market markets person because all I do is stare at FactSet or Bloomberg screens every day. And when I see Bitcoin or ETH both down 40% from a recent all-time high in a matter of months, and then I see this thing that's not marked to market, these risk assets that exist in these digital wallets that sometimes get frozen up or sometimes people don't understand how to get in and out of, I say to myself, there's pockets of risk there. But going back to your point about the crypto winner of 2018, the builders kept going. 
Coinbase probably was the most innovative years in probably 18 and 19 when you were thinking about the product roadmap. But every ICO in and around it, or not every, but most in 2017 or 16, they all went to zero. Those are the grifters. That's right. It was a little unfair. You picked one of the, I would say, blue chip creators. Yeah. Because I do think 99% are ephemeral. 99% cannot sustain community in the way that D'Amelio's have, in the same way that 99% of these PFP projects can't won't sustain what the apes have done. And so you are right. And I think statistically, you're going to be right 99 point something percent of the time. But the way that we butter our bread is when we're right the very rare time. And those are the things that will be the anchors that more interesting and innovative stuff ends up getting built on. And you can actually see that in the creator economy itself is such a good example to think in 10 years, it went from being, hey, I'll give you some money to take a photo with my product on Instagram. This is a great product, by the way, Roman Focus. I use it every day. Proud Roman investor. It went from being, hey, throw some money at me and I'll post a link or I'll post the image of this to I am launching my own direct-to-consumer brand. I want all of that margin for me. Good day. <laughs> because they got more sophisticated, because their reach got bigger. And the next generation probably won't even let Zuck capture all of that value because they'll be doing it on some other platform where they actually have and maintain control over their content and everything else. And so this stuff, it is... I think set for a really interesting next decade. And just like I said, focus on the folks building for the long term. And if you're one of those charlatans who's listening to this and is like, ah, oh, great, I can make a quick buck. I hate you. And I wish you would just go do some honest work. Just make something people actually want. Just do that. Don't grift. One of our core tenets is you're playing the longest game. Relationships matter. Integrity matters. Creating matters. That's it. And it's so hard. And I get it. And I've had these feelings of impatience. When I look over the last 10 years of investing, I've been so lucky the times when I couldn't get out of positions because of the illiquidity and ended up doing way better just because I had my hands tied. I was like, oh, I can't sell. So I'll just, I guess I'll just sit on it for a couple of years. And then thanks to compounding and whatnot, I ended up doing a lot better. And sometimes we all fall victim to these feelings of impatience. And so that constant reminder, Rick, of playing for the long game is so important. I feel like I should put it on the wall here because it's an easy thing to say too, but a very hard thing to practice day in and day out, but it's the only way. I can't unsee it. Alexis, you've been very generous with your time. I know Rick is an old friend and I hope to call you a new friend here, man. Your Twitter is amazing because it is uniquely positive about a bunch of technologies, a bunch of creators, a bunch of people that you're trying to lift up and prop up. And I think that is something worth keeping an eye on here, especially if you're skeptical about some of these Web3 concepts. So hopefully you'll come back and we can have this who owns the Web3 debate because that thing is not going to die down anytime soon. And Rick and I are going to have it a lot on OK Computer with our co-hosts here. So hopefully you'll come back for that. Yes. Actually, Dan, let's schedule a date a year from now. Uh-oh. We'll make a donation to your favorite nonprofit. All right, let's do this. So the bet is this. And again, I am not hating on Board 8 Yacht Club, okay? What I think the bet should be is the floor price right now, and we'll tweet it out or we'll send it out or something like that. Whatever that is, you and I are taking the over-under and 10000 to the charity of your choice if you win, 10000 to the charity of my choice if I win. And let's do it. And let's do something that the people are going to feel good about. It's all positivity, for sure. I think at the end of the day, look, I don't like being wrong, but if I am at the end of the day, I will gladly make that donation. And to echo Rick's sentiments, right, I'm here playing for the 10-year game. 
I would not advise you taking that bet for the long term, but let's make it for one year and let's see what happens. Hey, Alexis, thanks for coming on. Appreciate you joining us, brother. I'll see you soon.